If you want to fail, do nothing. Do nothing. We are born on track to fail. All you got to do is coast through life and just go with the flow. You will fail. This is one of the messages of the book of Proverbs is that we are set up to fail because of the fall, and we need, we need therefore, instruction to help us not fail. Last week, we looked at, um, the message was, our tutor for success, and we met Lady Wisdom. She's going to be our tutor to help us succeed in life according to God's terms. Tonight, we're looking at our defense against failure, because, well, if you do nothing, you're going to fail. Consider this, if Adam and Eve fell in the idealistic Garden of Eden, what makes you think you're not going to fail? Complacency is one of the curses of fallen humanity, and complacency will kill you. Look back at the verse just before, two verses just before Proverbs 2. It said this in 132, Proverbs 132. For the simple are killed by their turning away, And the complacency of fools destroys them. The complacency of fools destroys them. What do you need to do to to fail? What do you need to do to destroy your life? Absolutely nothing. Be completely satisfied with, with yourself. I'm a good chap. I'm doing fine. That's complacency. A smug satisfaction with oneself. That's all you need to do. So we therefore need mentors. We need mentors who motivate us and push us. We need, perhaps I should have said, we need motivators to push us into life, to push us down God's path, to show us where our nature is bent and and turned towards sin and where we can be straightened and how to follow God's way. Because without these motivators, we will fall into complacency and we will self-destruct. So what Proverbs does is it offers us these motivators through um, the father and mother figure in this book who are writing to their son. The father's letters and the mother there too, writing to the son, writing to the children, saying, go in the way of wisdom. Because if you're not told that, you're not going to do that. We also need lady wisdom to tutor us. So we need fathers and mothers to mentor us, whether it's your literal parents, and that most of you have outgrown that phase, you're now the parents of others, or if it's your spiritual fathers and mothers. We should all have people that help keep us on the path. We need mentors. And we also need our tutor, Lady Wisdom, who in chapter 1 told us she will be there guiding us and instructing us in the way. We have a personal present tutor to help us moment by moment well proverbs chapter two is our defense against failure so here's what we're doing starting last week taking us to the end of october we're looking at the college of christ which is what we're calling our study of the three wisdom books in the bible they are proverbs ecclesiastes and job in proverbs we are going to primary school with lady wisdom This lays the foundation for wisdom. It's an important place to start. Ecclesiastes is the university with Professor Vanity. 
You get a little older and you begin to realize, wait a minute, how does that add up? And then you get skeptical and cynical. We're going to go through all that with Professor Vanity. And then finally, we will land in Job, and he, we will go through maturity with Job the sage. Maturity is hard to reach. Look at our adolescent culture. Job will show us the pain that comes with growing out of adolescence and into maturity. So, Proverbs is where we are. Real quick, the book is divided into two parts. For the next few weeks, we'll be in part one. Chapters 1 through 9 are the lessons from the parents to the child. We ought to hear in these, Father, Son, we are children of God. He is our Heavenly Father. We ought to see in this not only instruction for we need to be mentors to others, but we also must listen and heed the instruction of our Heavenly Father. This is the path of wisdom. Lady Wisdom makes a few appearances in these lessons and shows up to remind us that I am woven into the universe and I am there to help. Lady Wisdom, in many ways, is a Christ figure or a Holy Spirit figure. Not saying that Christ is a feminine or anything, but there is a type, a shadow of Christ to come in Lady Wisdom who will be with us, who will give his, she says, I'll give my spirit to you. He gives his spirit to us. He's our tutor. She is our tutor. Well, it's getting confusing, so I'll just stop that. But you get the point. Don't, don't take that sound bite. Christ is he, she. That's not what I said. <laughs> but um, chapters 10 through 31, then, is when you turn to the actual Proverbs. And all, most of the verses stand alone as Proverbs. A proverb is a short sentence founded on long experience. Because the idea in these Proverbs is that you don't have to do it the world's way. The world's way is go live and learn from your mistakes, Lady Wisdom's way is learn from the Proverbs, learn from me, then go live. You wouldn't build an aircraft and send Josh into the cockpit and throw it off Highway 18 and hope it works. You don't do that. You test it first. Wisdom is about teaching us what will fly and what will crash before we actually go and risk our lives with what we're doing. So wisdom, therefore, what is wisdom? Proverbs is giving us this path of wisdom. So here, to recall last week, here's how we can differentiate it real briefly. Folly is oriented around our identity. The fool orients his life around his identity. So what he does is he strives to change reality to his identity. This is who I am. Let's change reality to match who I am. That's, that's the way of the fool. The way of the wise is oriented around God's reality around us. And so the way of the wise strives to change their identity to fit his reality. There is a reality. I need to find how I fit into this. Not, this is who I want to be. I need to change the world to support who I want to be. Wisdom is starting with God. The fear of the Lord, right, is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom brings a success. Because wisdom shows us how to live with the grain of God's universe. Foolishness does what it wants, so it goes against the grain, picks up some splinters along the way. Wisdom will show us this is how God made things. And if you want to succeed in life, this is how you go. That's wisdom. All right, Proverbs 2, our defense against failure. Proverbs 2 is an interesting um, little lesson here. It's the Father's second lesson. And let's hear our Heavenly Father's second lesson to us. So it's our Father's second lesson. Uh, Proverbs 2 is actually, I know in your Bible there's going to be periods and sentences, but Proverbs 2 is actually one 
run-on sentence. It's one sentence, the whole thing. It's two different stanzas of 11 verses each, and each stanza is balanced by three sections, four verses, four verses, three verses, four verses, four verses, three verses. And then within this, there are words that are equally balancing each other as they go. It's a very structured lesson in one breathless sentence. Um, So there's a sense here where the Father is trying to show us that if we walk in the way of wisdom, life has order and it has symmetry. It's balanced. Okay, um, I want to point out some of the balance here for you. Um, Look at verse 5 and 8, 5 through 8. You'll, well... Okay, yeah. Verse 5 starts with the word then. Verse 6 starts with the word for. And then verse 8 says guarding the paths of justice and watching the way of his saints. Then verses 9 through 11 is the next section that balances it out. It has in verse 9, then. In verse 10, for. And in verse 11, Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. So those two sections right there, you have the words, then, for, guarding, watching. Then, for, guarding, watching. Okay? The next section, verses 11 through 15, has delivering you from the way of evil. Verse 13, forsake the paths of righteousness, of uprightness. And then verse 15, men whose paths are crooked. Delivering, forsake, paths. Then the very next section, in verse 16 through 19, has the same balance. So you will be delivered from the forbidden women, verse 17, who forsakes the companion of her youth, and the second line of verse 18, her paths to the departed. So there, both of them, you have delivered, forsake, and paths. So there's, there's these balances going on. One other thing that you're going to see is verses 1 through 4 have three conditional clauses. If you, if you, if you, verses 5 through 22 are the effects of the cause. If you do this, conditional, then this result. So verses 5 through 22 is a long, here's what will happen if you do verses 1 through 4. And you can actually see it very clearly in verse 5. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Verse 9. Then you will understand righteousness, justice, and equity. And verse 12, delivering you. And verse 16, you will be delivered. So there's four results of these conditional clauses. Okay, so let's start. Chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek for it, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. There are your your conditions. If you receive my words, if you call out for insight, that's verse three and verse four, if you seek it. So, If we receive wisdom, if we call out for wisdom, and if we seek wisdom. If you will, in other words, not be complacent, but set your life, your mind, your heart, your emotions, your life toward wisdom. Then, verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord 
and find the knowledge of God. Oh, that's good. Because remember in chapter 1, verse 7, we were told, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here we're told how to find, how to understand, how to attain the fear of the Lord. If we receive his words, if we call out for insight, if we seek it like silver. So if we take on the active approach to wisdom, then we will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So in other words, uh, okay, then go down to verse 9. So uh, second result, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. So see, we'll understand two things if we pursue wisdom. It'll give us understanding who God is and how we're to live. So, if we do what the Father is asking us and pursue wisdom, then we will have three results. You will grow in God. We just saw in verses 5 through 11, you will grow in God. Second, you will resist sin. Look at verse 12. Delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech. We'll get, we'll get into some more of these verses later. But then in verse 16. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words. So he's delivering us from, from wicked men and from the forbidden woman. Okay. So there you have, we will, um, we will grow in God, we will resist sin. And third, if we follow the Father's conditions, his ifs, third, we will not fail, but we will succeed. This is starting in verse 20. So you will walk in the way of good and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. There you go. Now you know how to fail and how not to fail. Follow this father's instruction. You will succeed. If you ignore all this, you will be cut off from the land. An interesting case in which you actually want to be left behind in this instance. Because the wicked will be removed and cut off from the land. Um, Okay, so, you will grow in God. That's the first promise. So let's look at verses 5 through 11. You will grow in God. So if we receive wisdom, if we call out for wisdom... If we seek wisdom, we will grow in the knowledge of God. Verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. So we will grow in the knowledge of God. We will understand the fear of God. And here's the truth. See, God, wisdom is coming from God, verse 6 said. God gives wisdom. So in other words, wisdom is not this external, outside thing, this sort of like side job that we're doing. We follow God and then we try to be wise. Most of the world's like trying to do their thing and then they're trying to like, add wisdom along the way. Like, it's just one of those qualities I just want on my life. No, in the, in the Christian world, wisdom comes from God. Wisdom is God. God is wisdom. He, we, we therefore must grow in our understanding and relationship and knowledge of God, and he gives us wisdom. 
So as we are in God, God's wisdom comes in us. It's not an outside thing over here that we just tug along. It's within us. So to gain wisdom is to gain God. Or we need to think of this too, Christ. Christ, whom the New Testament tells us, is the embodiment of wisdom. To gain Christ is to gain wisdom. Or to gain wisdom is to gain Christ. These are not separate things. The wise man knows the way of God because God is guiding him along the way. uh, You'll notice we'll grow in God because we grow in the knowledge of God, but we also grow in the virtues of God. This is verse 9 through 11. So we will grow in the knowledge of God, we'll grow in the virtues of God. Then you will understand righteousness, justice, and equity, every good path. Just like, let's just stop at the list and just say, you'll just understand every good path. But notice those three words, righteousness, justice, and equity, because those are the very three words back in chapter 1, verse 3, that we were told the Proverbs and wisdom would give us. 1-3 said, the Proverbs are to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. This is part of what we need to gain. And now we see that if we're keeping our Father's instructions, we will understand, we will possess righteousness, justice, and equity. Every good path. So the virtues of God become part of who we are. See, Christianity is so misunderstood in the fact that everyone says it's, it's, it's all about morals and doctrine. I have a problem with that. Because morals are things that we do to conform to the rules around us. I'm not about morality. We need morality, and there's a, morality is where some of these things start. But virtue is when doing the right thing becomes part of who we are. Virtue is when the character of God is not something we're simply emulating, but is part of the character and shape and nature of my soul. That's virtue. And the Father here is saying, if you receive my words, if you call out for them, if you seek them, then you will understand righteousness, justice, and equity, every good path. Virtue will become part of who you are. We'll grow in our knowledge of God, which then immediately, as a result, gives us the virtues of God. Knowing him, him and us, we and him, the virtues start coming out. So that's that's what happens when we listen to our Father's instructions. We grow in God, our knowledge of him, and the virtues of him. I'm sorry, but we didn't finish this part, so let me read it. Uh, you'll grow in, you'll understand every good path, verse 10. For wisdom will come into your heart. See, there's where it becomes virtue. It's not just something we're trying to add on. It's, it becomes part of who we, it's part of our guiding within us. Wisdom will come into your heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. You're no longer going to have to do these things. It will be pleasant to you. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. So our protection, as we grow in God, our growth becomes our protection. It becomes our guardian. Because if complacency kills us, then our growth is what's guarding and keeping us. You keep moving on the path with Christ, you're guarded and you're kept. Because Christianity is a walk. It's not a doctrine. It's not a decision. Oh yes, we start with the decision. Oh yes, we learn our doctrines. But it is a path we walk. That's the way of Christianity. It keeps moving. Okay, so then. So we grow in God. Remember second, that we will resist sin. If we do our Father's instructions, we'll resist sin. This is verses 12 through 19. Two specific instances of resisting sin. The wicked man and the forbidden woman. So the wicked man in verse 12. So, 
if you do what I say, then you will know God, you will grow in virtue, and you will be delivered. So it will all delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the way of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil. Remember, understanding will become pleasant to our soul, but here, evil is pleasant to them. And delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Wicked men, the Father is warning us, are identified by their perverted speech in verse 12. From men of perverted speech. Perverted here, I'm not sure this was the best word to use in the translation because usually people hear pervert and they think, oh, he, he throws sexual jokes. He talks about sex all the time. That's not what perverted here means in Hebrew. It means just bent. It means crooked from the way. It's going the wrong way. Um, so that's what's happening here. You, you, under, you know a wicked man by his perverted speech. Listen to what a person says, wisdom is instructing us, and you will know whether they're on the way or not. Jesus warned us that from the, abund- from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in a person's heart? Well, you can never know. Well, I can take a pretty good guess if I give you five minutes of listening. Second way we'll understand, we'll identify the men of wisdom is that they, um, they love darkness. They resist God's way and love darkness. It says in 13, they forsake the paths of our brightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Darkness, First John helpfully tells us in chapter 1. Remember, this is a great passage where he says, look, if we say we have no sin, we walk in the dark. But if we confess our sins, we're walking in the light with Christ. These men love darkness. There, there's no sense of right and wrong here. There's, there's no sense that they, they've forsaken the paths and they, they believe that what they're doing is best, or at least they talk that way. We need to watch out for how people talk about what they're doing. Of course, there's the people that say, I know I'm a sinner and I'm going to party with people in hell. Well, you don't need a lot of wisdom to avoid that. You need the wisdom to avoid the people who deceptively make what they're doing appear like the right thing. Do people admit that they have sin? Are they people who are quick to confess their wrongs? If they're not, you cannot trust that they have a good sense of what path they're on. And in verse 14, we also identify the wicked man because their delight is in sin. 14 who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Yep, they love it. It's not like, oh, help me, I hate that I get drunk every Friday. Nope, that's not their attitude. The wicked man entices you, join me, it's such a good time. Lord, help the struggling saint, though, who's still going through that and says, but I hate this. There's a desire to be on the right path, and that's a person that we should come alongside not the person to avoid. All right, that's the wicked man. But especially dangerous to our father is the forbidden woman in verse 16 to 19. I say especially because she, this is our introduction to her. Chapter one, we we met Lady Wisdom. Now we're meeting the forbidden woman. Like Lady Wisdom, she's going to pop up again and again. Basically, chapters five through seven all deal with the forbidden woman. Chapters 8 and 9 are Lady Wisdom's last words to triumph over this forbidden woman. So we get to meet her right now. Verse 16, You will be delivered from the forbidden woman. 
from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets her covenant with God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the path of life. Wow. Solomon is warning us so clearly, this is a dead end road. Dead end is putting it kindly, because it just goes down into the realm of the dead. There's no coming back once you go to the forbidden woman. Now, our introduction to her is very stark, very clear, and there's two primary things that our father's telling us about the forbidden woman. First, she's an apostate. She's an apostate. That means someone who's turned their back on the faith. Willfully turned their back on it. Not fallen away, not slipping, but have said, I once was this, I am not anymore. That's an apostate. Notice how he describes her. You'll be delivered from the forbidden woman. Footnote says that the Hebrew means strange. She's forbidden. She's strange. Also, the next line of verse 16. From the adulteress. The ESV comes with a footnote down at the bottom. It says Hebrew can also mean foreign woman. So here, she's forbidden, she's an adulteress, or she's strange and she's foreign. This is not an ethnic slur. It's not that the Bible's saying, whoa, you should stay with Americans, or whatever it is. Color skin. That's not what this is saying here. By calling her strange, by calling her forbidden, by calling her an adulteress, by calling her foreign... It means to show us that she's standing distanced from the family of God. She has chosen to isolate and distance herself from it. That's why she's foreign. That's why she's strange. She's cut herself off and stands outside of the kingdom. This is why we're being warned about her. Why? Because she's an apostate. And second, she's an adulteress. Verse 17, she forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. The companion of her youth is her husband. The Hebrew there talks about intimacy. So that's the assumption and forgets the covenant of her God. In other words, by abandoning her husband, she has, in the eyes of Proverbs, turned her back on God. She was brought into this union, a covenant with God. She, in breaking with him, has also decidedly broken. So this seems to be the reason she's not with her husband. She's broken with community from the people of God. So she's an apostate and an adulteress. There's not a lot of difference here. And the reason, perhaps, that Solomon is so obsessed with guiding us away from the forbidden woman, and ladies in here are like, all right, long enough, let's move on. But the reason, perhaps, that he's so obsessed with the forbidden woman is, well, first of all, quite literally, young men who need the Proverbs, this is very tempting to them. Easy sex. Woo! More broadly, to all humans, easy pleasure. Woo! So the forbidden woman can be metaphorical for so many things. But more, more broadly, and perhaps yet even more behind what Solomon is saying, is that the forbidden woman is a symbol for our temptation to sin and idolatry. Because the way she seduces the young man in Proverbs is the same way that all sin and all idols seduce us. They must attract us and lure us just like the forbidden woman does. Also, 
Solomon has a little bit of experience here. Little bit. And it was his many wives who led his heart astray from God. Remember how the we did the prophets, right? All like the last couple of years, we were in the prophets quite a bit. The prophets often associate idolatry with adultery. So to turn from your God is to have idolatry with an idol. And so it's very, very, very seems apparent that what Solomon and our father are instructing us here is beware of the forbidden woman, yes, on a literal physical sense, but spiritually, because she is the symbol of Solomon's downfall, the wisest man on earth. If she could make him fall. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, the father's saying, beware. So she's going to make more of an appearance. So if we do the Father's instruction, we will um, grow in God. We will resist sin. And third, we will not fail but succeed. That's the last three verses of the chapter. And we already looked at that. Very simple conclusion. The unrighteous will be taken out because if God is going to dwell with his people and there's going to be this harmony, the unrighteous have to be removed. The ones ruining our friendship with God. That's what the Father here says. All right. Chapter 2, verse 10 said this. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Wisdom's not an external force that we consult occasionally. It's an internal voice guiding us moment by moment. Did you hear that? Wisdom's not an external force. It's an internal voice. Because it's a relationship with God. It's God within us. Or put it this another way. Rules are external. And following rules is not wisdom. It's just common sense. (laughs) Following rules is external. And sometimes rules get in the way, don't they? Sometimes rules actually get in the way of following God. I'm trying to think of something on the spot. But when we make rules about maybe dress code, and now people, that, because of what someone's wearing, it's in the way of them worshiping God, perhaps. You know, if, you're, if there's a place where like, you can't come in here wearing that. Rules are made by people. Sometimes God gives us rules, though. Rules alone can be external, and they sometimes get in the way. Like, if I think that I'm close to God because I'm keeping all his rules, I've missed the point. Jesus told the rich young ruler, you want to follow me? Okay, keep these commands. And he's like, I kept all these from my youth. And the guy still didn't get it. Jesus is like, well, one thing you lack, give all that you have to the poor and then follow me. That's not a rule. He kept all the rules. Wisdom, however, is internal. And it's, while rules can get in the way, wisdom guides us on the way. It helps us in the way. So we should internalize, therefore. We want to take God's instructions, his teachings, and we want to internalize them for when they come inside of us and become part of us, then his instruction and teachings go from knowledge to wisdom. We keep the Bible, we keep his teachings, we keep theology, we keep all of our, I know God, if we keep all that external and in the head, it's not wisdom. It has to enter inside of us. That's when it's wisdom. 
So we should internalize God's instruction. As verse 10 says, wisdom will come into your heart. Why should we internalize his wisdom? Because rules can't grow you. Rules can't change you. Like we already looked at the rich young ruler, he can keep all the rules, but he's not changed. What would really change him is such a likeness to Christ that his things aren't his own. Rules can't change us. But the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of God, this relationship, because the Lord gives wisdom in verse 6, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding, hearing his voice from his mouth, there is a closeness, an intimacy, a relationship. That's where the change comes from. Rules don't grow us or change us. Relationships do. Second reason we should internalize his instruction is that internalizing his instruction gives us an appetite for his kingdom. It does. If we internalize God's word, our desires change. And, and verse 10 said that. For wisdom will come into your heart. And what's the result? Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. The ways of God, wisdom, his path, will be pleasant to your soul. Here's what's really cool about that word soul, which I did not know until this week, is that the word soul, well, I knew it was nephesh, but here's what I didn't know. Nephesh, the Hebrew word for soul, is um, soul, mind, living being. That's generally what it means. You read soul, it's talking about your, your soul, your mind, and being a living being. Are we okay? <laughs> okay. All right, I hear someone yelling, Mom. It's like... All right, good. Okay. Um, but it also means nephesh, soul. It means passion, desire, appetite. I didn't believe this at first. I was like, really? Soul can be translated? Nephesh can be translated appetite, desire, passion? So then you look at chapter 6, verse 30, and sure enough, it's true. 6, verse 30 uh, says this. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his nephesh when he is hungry. The ESV puts that, to satisfy his appetite. 10.3, 10.3. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but thwarts the nephesh of the wicked. Thwarts the cravings of the wicked. Those are just two examples. There were a few more in Proverbs, but I thought that would suffice to show. Nefesh deals with our appetite, our hungering. Here's what one commentator said. He said, it refers to the passionate drives and appetites of all breathing creatures, including their drive for food and sex. Okay, so let's, let's, let's read that again in chapter 2, verse 10. Wisdom will come into your heart, result, and knowledge will be pleasant to your nefesh, to your appetite to your passion, to your desires. There you go. Wisdom will become desirable. That's good. That's good. If anyone's tried to have a diet, a long-term diet, you'll notice that your appetites actually change. Cheesecake doesn't look as good as it used to. I mean, you still want it, but it's, it's a little more easier to avoid that when once you ran on stuff like that, you know? America runs on Dunkin', the saying, <laughs> their slogan goes. Um, well, yeah, but if you start incorporating more vegetables into your diet on a frequent basis, you actually start, at first it's really hard. It's like, it tastes like dirty water. Literally, it's what it tastes like. But then soon, like, the carrot becomes sweet, and the, um, uh, the 
Spinach leaf, velvety. What's your saying? It was velvety. I saw Ron in the supermarket one day, and he just opened up a pack of spinach and just demonstrated. Feel the velvet, Brandon. Come, we gotta do this. He puts a leaf in his teeth. Feel it, and there's a soft little crunch, and then there's this sweet juiciness that comes in. It's like you don't think of spinach that way, but when you eat it more often, you you start to. It is. It's got a sweetness of its own. Anyways, the point is that the more we feed ourselves something, the more our appetite is trained to to run on it. And so, when we allow wisdom to enter our soul, our nefesh, our, our soul's appetite, our being's desire, will, will want more of it. That's the idea. This is why we should internalize, therefore, God's word and instruction, because it changes our desires for his kingdom. Oh, but the world's so hard. Orient yourself around his kingdom, because by desiring his kingdom... Because his word is internalized in you. Third reason we should internalize his instruction is you will no longer see God's commands as something you have to do, but as something you get to do. Because if your appetite has changed, like, yes, Lord, I love your law, the Psalms say. I can't imagine not being conformed to your word. So if you find yourself saying, I have to do this, you're following rules. But if you get to do what God is asking you to do, you know that wisdom's entered your heart. You know that Christ has entered your heart. You know that there's a relationship with him. Okay, sounds good, right? So then how do we internalize God's word? It's one thing to tell you to do that and then let you go. It's another thing to help you do it. So, three ways that come right from verses one through four. The Father's conditions, remember? If you receive, if you call out, if you seek for wisdom, building off of these, we find three ways to internalize our Father's instructions to us. First, verses 1 and 2. If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. First is to treasure Scripture. Treasure Scripture. Sometimes we don't treasure it. We all have it, and it gathers dust, except for when you come out once a week because you actually open your Bible and, you know. But but that shouldn't be it. Treasure the scriptures. This is what he's telling him. If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. That word treasure up is to store, to hide, to save, like depositing money in a bank. Because you know it's value, so you want to make sure you have plenty of it. That's what treasure up means. How do you treasure up? How do you treasure scripture? Memorize it. It's amazing how much you love it. A passage, the more you go over it. No, it gets redundant. It gets old. Give me something fresh. Actually, no. I can't help but notice that when we pray and recite Psalm 23, how many people are eager to recite it, and I get so taken aback that I misquote lines. <laughs> I forget lines. Uh, because it's, it is, it's true, though. Like we're hung, we, we just want, we want to treasure it up. And if we do so, if we memorize Scripture, we start storing it up in us, like Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word have I stored up, or some translations have I treasured, that I might not sin against you. And then another way to treasure up scripture is to meditate on scripture. Memorizing is a good way to meditate on it. But another way is just when you're reading scripture, let something that just stuck out to you there just be regurgitated in prayer. Wisdom will enter into your heart. 
wisdom will enter into your heart. And just meditate by chewing over those words. Meditate. Uh, wisdom will enter into your heart. Wisdom will enter into your heart. That's another way to treasure scripture. It really gets inside you as you go over a line over and over. Psalm chapter 1, by the way, tells us to do that. Notice also the word incline. It's uh, in verse 2. Making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Incline. Like, you know, a hill goes up. That's an incline. But really, it refers to, like, Hebrew refers to bending or bowing or turning or stretching out. That's what incline is. I love that one. Stretch out. It helps me think of it like um, the first baseman in baseball. The shortstop throws a little errantly. The first baseman has to stretch out to grab that ball and keep the, his foot on the bat so the runner's out, right? That's inclining your heart to God's law. Maybe I'm over here, his law's over here. I must stretch myself to get there. Inclining, it's bending, it's bowing, it's turning, it's, 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 it's taking the shape of your direction and moving it toward the direction of God's word. That's inclining your heart. So, when you hear sermons... <laughs> um, whether it's on podcast or here or on Facebook, our attention tends to drift, or we tend to say, this isn't that serious. He'll be done soon. But giving our attention to the preaching of the word, that's inclining our heart to it. It's stretching our, it's craning our, our heart's neck to get all of the drops. Also spiritual reading. Not all of us are readers. Some of us are great readers. But reading books that help our soul. This also we should read attentively. These are not books you race through to say, I got my 50 books in a year, Mark. These are books that you take line by line if necessary because they're rich and they're teaching your soul. Spiritual reading is also how we incline our hearts. All right, second way to internalize God's teaching. We treasure scripture. We also give our voice to prayer. Verse 3. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. So we give our voice to prayer. If wisdom is gained by a relationship with God, we must speak to him. Yeah? James 1.5 tells us that if we ask for wisdom faithfully, it says we do not doubt, then we will get it. So we pray for wisdom. We raise up our voice. Uh, the word raise right here, if you raise your voice for understanding... Um, it's all, it means to give. Actually, in verse 6, the Lord gives wisdom is the same Hebrew word as if you raise your voice. So we give our voice for understanding. It's this whole idea of your get, this is what my voice is. I'm using my voice to, to pray for this. I'm giving myself to it. And one commentator said it's also in the sense that if you don't get it, you keep raising your voice. Like blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, when he says, uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd said, shh. And so it said he cried out all the more. That's to me an illustration of raise your voice for understanding. Give your voice to it. We pray, we pray, like James said, pray for wisdom. And he who prays faithfully without doubting, just keep praying and God will pour it into you. Because the act of continually praying for something is putting ourselves in that relationship with God. Number three, third way to internalize God's word. So we treasure scripture. We raise our voice in prayer. And third, we seek, we seek our relationship with God. We seek it. Because relationships, <laughs> a complacent relationship will die. No one just, oh, a relationship, I have that. 
and you leave it there. You don't have a relationship. You live a relationship. It's not something I acquire and then keep over here. I'm married. Check. Got that. You won't be married for long. A relationship is something you seek out. And so it has to be active. Here's our wording in verse 4. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Seek it. Search it. The word search is dig. When Joseph, it's the same word used when Joseph is digging through the grain sacks of his brothers to find that cup that was stowed away in there. Digging to look for something. Seeking means to investigate so there is this, this mentality of, I'm going to go after it. And it takes work. Cultivating God's word in our lives takes work. It doesn't just say, okay, God, I want it in my heart. Done! Amazing! It's about seeking the relationship of, Lord, keep on, I'm going to keep on treasuring your words. I'm going to keep on raising my voice for wisdom. Then, little by little, it's internalized within us. There's a beautiful story I had remembered in studying this about Charles Spurgeon. Um, and I, I, w- I went back and found it. Um, it's in one of his um, biographies. Charles Spurgeon, 19th century great English preacher. He's known as a prince of preachers. John Chrysostom IV is the golden mouth. Spurgeon is the prince. Um, this is what it said in the book about Spurgeon. I was walking with him, Spurgeon. I was walking with Spurgeon in the woods one day, just outside London, And as we strolled under the shadow of the summer foliage, we came upon a log lying athwart in the path. Come, said Spurgeon, as naturally as one would say if he were hungry and bread was put before him. Come, let us pray. And kneeling beside the log, he lifted his soul to God in the most loving and yet reverent prayer. Then, rising from his knees, he went strolling on, talking about this and that, The prayer was no parenthesis interjected. It was something that belonged as much to the habit of his mind as breathing did to the habit of his body. I just love that image. That's someone who's seeking relationship with God. He doesn't just have it. I have a prayer life. He's seeking, oh, look at this beautiful place we are. We should praise God. There's another story of him who was laughing. And right after the laughter, he said, come, brother, let's thank the Lord for laughter. Just a hair's breadth between laughter and prayer for him. So the reason Proverbs reads like instructions and lessons from a father to his son is because we are called to be lifelong students of Christ, constantly seeking after him, not being complacent. This is what Paul exclaims in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If we internalize the instructions of our Father, we will never fail. This is how we guard ourselves from failure. Lord, as we come now to your table, we ask that the words we've heard, that the words we've read, that this great 
and mysterious, beyond our comprehension, relationship that we have with you would all become part of the fiber.